This episode is brought to you by Exceder. Exceder provides life science startups with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to accelerate R&D and commercialization. Lease the equipment you need with Exceder. Extend your runway, hit your milestones. As a podcast listener, you can redeem exclusive discounts with a growing list of biotech vendors and get $500 off your first equipment lease by using promo code TBSP on exceder.com slash rewards. Welcome to the Biotech Startups Podcast by Exceder. Join us as we speak with first-time founders, experienced scientists, serial entrepreneurs, and biotech investors about the challenges and triumphs of running a biotech startup. Gain actionable insight into navigating the life sciences industry in each episode as we explore the business of science from pre-seed to IPO with your host, John Chi. The purpose of the Biotech Startups podcast is to provide general insight into the ever-changing world of life sciences through the experience of a variety of guests. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast are at the user's own risk. The views expressed by guests and any employee of Exceder on the podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Exceder or content sponsors. Any appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement or recommendation of any product, service or entity referenced in the podcast by Exceder or by its guests. In our last episode, we spoke with James Evans about his childhood and the lessons he drew from it, his Belgian lab experience and his move to the US to pursue his passion for imaging research. If you missed it, be sure to go back and give it a listen. Today, we're excited to continue our conversation, diving into James's time at MIT's Whitehead Institute, finding the quickest way to the most effective data, his path to entrepreneurship with Fenavista, and the culture shock of leaving academia for the private sector. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. After your time at MIT and working in Paul's lab and, and getting all this experience, did you just wake up one day and you chose entrepreneurship and decided <laughs> to leave this gig? Like, you know, that gig sounds awesome. I would imagine something kind of lit a fire. What did that for you? Yeah, well, so Paul made the decision to move to Singapore. There was a lot of collaboration that it was great to be a part of between MIT and Singapore the last few years that was at MIT. Yeah, so Paul had an opportunity to move to Singapore and, and head up the biology department there. And I kind of helped with the transition, but I'd already kind of made my move from the UK to the US. And frankly speaking, Singapore is extremely humid and my hair gets <laughs> yeah. really, really, really froey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't afford the hair gel that I would need to survive there. So uh, I thought, honestly, like it was time for me to go out on my own. I had, you know, a great opportunity working with Paul and, and if, like I said, a really prestigious, incredible environment for 10 years. I kind of looked around and saw other people who had stayed in that environment. I was like, okay, I can either choose and just stay in this environment for the rest of my career or go out on my own. And I decided to go out on my own and dude, it was hard. Like I remember just walking the streets like literally walking the streets thinking, how am I going to pay rent? And just trying to get little gigs with this company and that company. And then a friend of mine introduced me to a, to a VC funded biotech company who was looking for help with high content. That became like half my paycheck a month. And I ended up working for them for a couple of years and helping them kind of get high content up and running and helping them interpret the data. And that was really good because it helped me pay my rent. But also it helped for sort of an education to sort of how 
science is done in that environment. And I worked alongside a lot of scientists there. And then there was a particular kind of senior guy who we used to work with who ran the group. And he was like, you know, industry veteran. He was in the best way possible, a total bastard. <laughs> you know, you would present data and he would be like just tearing it apart and you'd be like, oh, I hate you. But it would make you like have to make it ironclad because you get into this and then like, you know, the next time you'd be okay, well, how is this guy going to like take it apart? So you'd start, you know, defending, you are making it impenetrable to, to criticism. And, you know, it's just great. It just makes you stronger. And then again, that's another thing that translates now is that it's like we're presenting data to the client. You're like, well, what's the client going to say about this? They're going to have questions about this weird trend there. That, you know, and so like, let's explain it. If we can't, then we can't. But like, put yourself in that position. And so that was great. For, for a time there, I lived in Manhattan. I had a client down in Manhattan one day a week, and then I would drive up to Boston. And there was always a Tuesday morning meeting at 9 a.m. And so I'd have to leave Manhattan at like, 5 or 6 a.m. to drive up. So by the time I got to this like 9 a.m. meeting to review data with this very particular director, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd be like sleep deprived and grouchy from driving. So I was just like fired up and ready for a fight. So it was always pretty funny. The baptism of fire, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 It was great. I mean, it is good. And I made lots of friends there that I've kept in touch with over the years. I mean, yeah, well, I was working for a bunch of different companies. One of my clients was based here in San Diego. And had just been awarded a contract with the EPA to do this tox gas screening and needed somebody to build up that capability and execute on that contract. And so kind of within a week had moved to San Diego and I like surfing. I've been surfing for 20 years or something now, mostly, you know, start surfing on the East Coast and going out to Puerto Rico in the winter and doing that with friends at MIT. And so I used to come out to San Diego whenever I could. So it was a good opportunity. And yeah, moved out here and, and worked on that contract, built up a team. And it was, again, really uh, good experience. And that's where I met Tony, who was a co-founder of Cinevista. He was in my group. And we saw an opportunity to start our own company, kind of with our own kind of rules and sort of focus and everything. And yeah, so Tony and I started Pina Vista end of 2014. There was just the two of us. You know, both of our significant others had proper jobs. So they agreed to kind of let us go back to sort of postdoc level earning and try and write some grants and see if we can get some momentum going. And I built the first website. We signed a lease in like October, November. We moved in the end of November. We had no clients. We had been talking to a couple of people, but we had no paying clients at that point. And we just had like kind of a runway. We're like, okay, we're going to pay ourselves, you know, X per month. We got our rent to cover. We have like a year of runway, maybe. And then we started making money in January. When I say making money, we were making like a couple thousand dollars. You know, it was like enough to cover our rent maybe. But, you know, by March, by like the springtime, we were cash flow positive. We were paying ourselves and paying the rent and gathering momentum. We didn't have time to write grants. We were paying customers. And then we ended up hiring our first full-time employee within a year. So October 2015, we hired Erica Martin, who is still with Athena Vista, thankfully. She's our number one employee. She's our senior director of lab operations. So she was a high school intern at the imaging core facility at the Whitehead. Wow. So she had gone through from ground up, you know, microscopy training. And she's just been, you know, a huge part of the culture of Fina Vista and trains and managing. I mean, she does so much. And yeah, so for about two years, it was Tony, me and Erica. And one of the funniest things was just like, when it was Tony and me, we had this, you know, shared office and I would do the music and I would do all the biz development marketing. He would do all the lab work. I wasn't even Spotify because I wasn't aware of like Pandora or whatever it was on. Mm -hmm. And we'd have like bands that we both 
hated. So whenever one of these bands would come on, we'd add it to the post-it note on the back of the door. We'd be like, yes. no fly list. This cannot come on. If we could yeah. have that. And we had this like tissue culture room in the back of the lab because we had like this basement and found these hoods that we thought, oh, there's no way these are going to work. They're going to need like maintenance and stuff. But we've gone for like 500 bucks each and they work. But we had three of them crammed in this like little closet. And so in the summer, it was super hot in there. So Tony's going in there doing tissue culture and he's like stripping off the like, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, he's, he's yeah. not work appropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's what you can do. And then he would just come out like dripping and swell. Oh my God, he's gross. So then when we got Erica, that was our first kind of like, okay, well, we're going to have to get a little bit more professional, but still, you know, it was still pretty friendly. But you know, what was really crazy just from an organizational perspective was miscommunication. Because when it was Tony and me, there was one line of communication. If you're not doing it, the other guy's doing it. You know, there's nowhere to hide. When there's three of you, you suddenly go from one line of communication to three lines of communication. And the rate of error is way higher. And we would drop balls and we would get mad at each other and could be tears and gnashing of teeth. And so that was really the start of like, okay, well, we need to put together a system. We need to have like process development. And we used to have these big whiteboards of truth. We'd have like the two massive whiteboards with like all the projects that were going on and what's happening each day. And that was really the start of what we've developed at Fina Vista, which is a lot of internal processes to make sure we don't screw up and we don't make a mistake in terms of the details or, you know, forget to do something or completely forget about a project, which back in the day it happened. I remember and saying, hey, how's that project going along? He's like, what project? And we're like, it's supposed to be, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely a, a multifaceted problem running a scientific business, for sure. Totally. And I have so many directions I kind of want to go with and pull on the string. So like, I'm thinking about this chronologically, you know, you're at MIT, which is academic, has one type of lab work environment and processes there. And then you go into a venture-backed company for profit, which has a bunch of different processes there clearly with one of the managers who has his own process. Yeah. And then you go from Boston, then you go to Manhattan, and then you go to San Diego, and then you end up starting your own business and fulfilling the grant. Moving from academia to this venture-backed startup, obviously defending your work was one aspect. What were some other hard lessons learned or like key takeaways when you made that transition? So I was working alongside a lot of really talented scientists and this VC-backed company would obviously have changes in direction or priorities or funding or whatever, but you would just see some restructuring that went on. And it just seems so unfair having not been used to it, right? Because you're like, but these scientists are really good and they work really hard and you're just canning them all. And now fast forward, you just realize like, it's not about how hard you're working. We just have a change in priorities. And, you know, sure enough, these people went and got jobs elsewhere, you know, pretty quickly. It's traumatic, but it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is different, you know, because in academia, that just really doesn't happen. People are only let go if they did something really terrible or really bad. <laughs> so, yeah, but this is much more based on the company's need for talent and sort of changing that to the changing needs. That was probably the biggest cultural or sort of organizational difference that happened for me. Absolutely. And I had a similar experience too. It's kind of just like a shock to the system coming from academia and then going into kind of private sector. Obviously, there's like a weather difference. And, you know, San Diego surf is great when you went to the West Coast. What was your experience moving from East Coast to West Coast and working on a lab on the West Coast? What was that like? It's funny. I mean, I think there is that stereotype of West Coast 
folks tend to be maybe a bit more upbeat and, and sort of positive. And I guess it's hard because there is a lot of fluidity and a lot of people move back and forth and that everything. But for work now, I travel back to Boston pretty frequently to, to meet with clients. And I should say all our clients are lovely. But there is a sort of a hard edge. And I think California tends to be a little bit more sort of like, let's look at the cup half full a little bit more in general. But I think even within Fina Vista, I'm really proud of how diverse our company is, both sort of culturally, but also in terms of the type of people and their personalities. So, you know, we don't have just a bunch of people thinking the same way. You know, you definitely have people with different perspectives. And I think that's really important. And then I think I can see that being important across the industry too, with companies having you know, East Coast, West Coast sites and so on. And But definitely it's a lot easier to kind of balance yeah, doing 10 years in Boston and then having spent 10 years in California since then, I'm older and I got family now in California. I didn't have that back when I was a postdoc. It was all just about the lab grind. So, you know, that worked out well for me because I could really sort of pour myself into lab life during my sort of 20s and 30s. And then to now, although, you know, still work long hours, it's a lot easier to kind of immediately switch from work mode to spending time with the family, run down to the beach after work or something. You know, it's a lot more doable. Yeah, I completely agree. My wife is from Southern California and we actually just came back from a trip. Can't say I'm a surfer, but I can appreciate beaches. And something that really resonated with me that you mentioned earlier is your wife and helping with, you know, the original grant writing and having the real job and Chloe, my wife has had a similar impact for us in Exceder and just how important it is to have someone who is supportive of it. Cause I don't think it would be at least for Exceder be possible if Chloe wasn't there, especially in the early days when, you know, like exactly what you said, like before you have a client, it's so difficult. Yeah. It sounds a bit cliche, but I wouldn't have started thinking of this if it wasn't for my wife. Like she's the one who believed in me and gave me the support. And then I get a lot of free advice from things she brings home from her day-to-day job. So that's been really helpful from uh, sort of an organizational perspective too. But yeah, I mean, running a business is incredibly hard. I mean, it's the hardest thing. I mean, it's like grad school hard. You know, we were talking earlier on about like solving problems. You solve a problem and then the problem evolves and you got to solve it again. It's a little bit more like for me, you know, having small kids, like you do sleep training and you're like, oh yeah, kids are sleep trained, done and done. Then it, they grow out of it and you got to do it again. And then it's the next thing. And it's a lot like a business in terms of the problems you solved when your company was six or eight or 10 people. Those don't work when your company's 25 people. And, you know, I haven't got to 50 plus, 300 plus back like, imagine like for me the biggest problems are the science and the imaging the computational aspects all those things yeah that's my wheelhouse like and we have lots of scientists who can kind of tackle those they're not easy but we have the skill set the tricky things are where we work with people like yourself is getting access to capital to get the instrumentation we need to like managing hr and benefits and stock options and like you know dealing with their hr issues and you know this kind of stuff that's horrendous yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Having support for that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's kind of like no one tells you about all of these things beforehand before you decide to embark on it. But you wouldn't listen if they did. I mean, like, because you wouldn't know. This is the classic is like, if the science is good, everything else would be fine. Yeah, kind of. I mean, the science does need to be good, but it's probably 10 or 20% of the problem. Like, science does have to be absolutely good. So does the accounting. So does the marketing. So do all these other things which you never even thought about, you know, until you start doing it. Insurance, you know, crap like that. It's uh... yeah. yeah, that's exactly the same feeling I felt too. And I still continue to feel 
And I guess, you know, the problem solving, what you're describing is exactly how I feel about it too. It's like multivariable and the thing mutates. <laughs> and I was playing the new Zelda with my wife and there's a lot of like these temples and shrines where you go in, it's, it's a problem that yes, there are variables, but there's not a growing amount of variables. You can solve this thing and then move on. But with business, there's emotions involved, you know, time pressure, yeah, yeah, time pressure. And when you're trying to focus on the science and then you have to learn, like you said, insurance, it's like, these are feel like very disparate things. So I completely, you know, I'm getting like PTSD thinking about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you were just starting Fina Vista, I'm yeah. kind of like zooming out. What was the big driving force for you and your co-founder? Was it an instance where you saw a huge underserved market where you thought we can be the ones to fill this need? Or was it something where it's like, well, the current options are subpar and we can do it better? And you know, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but like, what were you thinking when founding Fina Vista? It was kind of a combination of those things, to be honest. I mean, I think the big thing looking back on it now and having some perspective on it, and this is like almost 10 years ago now, you know, IPS-derived technology was still relatively new. And we were using IPS-derived neurons back when we were doing this work for the EPA. And Fujifilm was really the only provider of those cells at the time. But people in biotech and pharma were kind of jury was still out on sort of whether these were good model systems. And so when Tony and I started Pina Vista, we were like, oh, okay, well, Tony's really got great hands in the lab and, you know, he can make cells jump through hoops. So when we first started, we were doing a lot of like bake-offs between human RPS-derived neurons and like rat primary cultures and things like that. People were like really wanting to kind of see how the data stacked up and we don't do that anymore. Like people are like, okay, yeah, IPS all the way, you know, let's do co-cultures with astrocytes, let's do tri-cultures with microglia, let's put in some disease phenotypes, let's do it in 3D and make it public. You know, people are like way more pushing the envelope now. And so the marketing speak was to democratize access to phenotypic screening. And yeah, it worked out to be pretty good timing. We started off with neurons and, you know, working with Fujifilm and we looked for other providers and there are more providers now that are available. But Fujifilm has a really good quality product. And so we definitely still work a lot with Fujifilm. Awesome. And when you and Tony were just starting, like when you were conceptualizing the business model, were you drawing upon a lot of like your core facility grad school experience in Vala and then like kind of modifying it and doing it the Fina Vista way? I mean, honestly, like it's kind of a funny joke that business model like and, you know, business plan. We never wrote one, just kind of did it, just kind of like mapped out like, okay, look, this is what we're going to pay ourselves. This is the rent. This is how much time we've got to like earn X, Y, and Z. And we had to be really opportunistic because we didn't know whether this was going to work and we weren't in a position to turn down any work. So we took any job for any money we could in the first, you know, six months for like, we'll do whatever. And I think that's the difference between being bootstrapped you know, versus sort of venture back or something like that, where you kind of have a mission and you stick to it. Whereas like bootstrap, you kind of like, let's see where this takes us and go with, you know. And so, yeah, what we ended up with five years after that is a business model that's like forged in the real world, right? Like it's market validated. Like, you know, the people, people ask us, so you cash flow positive. You're like, yeah, because if we're not, we're not in business. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. That's where yeah. you got to be. So like, that's how we ran the business. Very sort of capital efficient. Yeah. And what compelled you to build it in the bootstrap kind of path versus your previous role had a venture back experience? Was there a kind of a impetus or kind of a, a choice, a cognizant choice that you made? Well, you see, the companies I worked at previously that had venture back, I wasn't involved in any of that fundraising, right? So I had no skill set or network. So it was really 
necessity. I was like, well, you're going to do it the old fashioned way. And because that's all I know. And I didn't have like a year to go out and raise money. And I didn't have a track record. Or, I mean, maybe I did, but I, I didn't feel that I could go and like kind of do a roadshow and raise funds. And to be honest, like a lot of companies had previously tried to do high content screening or asset services and not been able to make it work. So it would be a hard sell. So, you know, it was really just sort of set the bar really low in terms of like, okay, what are we going to try and do? And then just build on it. And that's what we did. We just managed to sort of get cash flow positive in the first year, hire some people, and then just grow organically, get some business development help in Boston after a couple of years. And yeah, and that started to really sort of grow our revenue and then took on some outside investment in the last couple of years and helped us scaling the growth. And that's kind of where we're at right now is really keep the growth accelerating and start working on things that we never even thought of really. I mean, I guess we did, the video thinking about, you know, margins and EBITDA to all these kind of things and getting a lot of the support that we'd ever had in the first few years, you know, like having financial professionals full-time on the staff to, to work on cost accounting and forecasts and things like that. So it's almost like a real company. That's all for today's episode of the Biotech Startups Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our insightful conversation with James Evans, covering his experience at the Whitehead Institute, his move to San Diego, his roller coaster journey towards entrepreneurship, and the joy of building a culture at Fenavista that respects work-life balance. To learn more about James's journey, be sure to tune in to our next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to having you join us again on the Biotech Startups podcast for part three of James's journey, where we will cover his take on solving the growing pains of a startup, what it is like working as a bootstrapped company, and the differences between working with small companies and large corporations. The Biotech Startups podcast is brought to you by Exceda. Don't want to miss an episode? Make sure to search for Biotech Startups Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. To learn more about our leasing programme, visit our website www.excedr.com. We provide research labs with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to support a path to exceptional outcomes. On behalf of the team here at Exceda, Thanks for listening.